Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone. This is Jonathan Strickland, and you're listening to a Tech Stuff Classic episode now on Fridays. And today's classic episode is all about a famous incident that happened in the 1980s, the Max Headroom Incident, uh, a moment where a pirate with a song in his heart and a rubber mask on his face interrupted some television broadcast signals and made history. And speaking of history, Chuck Bryant, a historic podcast giant in his own right and co-host of Stuff You Should Know, as well as the host of Movie Crush, joined me for this episode to talk all about this interesting moment in tech history and the the move of signal pirates. How was that even possible? So I hope you enjoy this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Chuck, if you were in Chicago. Yes. On November 22nd. Yes. 1987. Yeah. And you were watching uh, WGN at 9 p.m. Uh-huh. Because you, you want to check out the news. Right. And it's coming up on the sports, which I know you're a fan of. The sure. sports. Yeah. What happened? Well, I, that could have happened because I would have been 16 at the time. Yeah. You and I are in this age wheelhouse. Yeah. We, we actually were alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at this time. And we were, we would have been aware of at least the entity that appeared instead of the sports scores. Um, but yeah, something weird happened at that moment. There was, uh, an interruption in normal service. Yeah. What they call a broadcast intrusion. And, uh, like all classic broadcast intrusions, it started with a little grainy, uh, you know, uh, static, static yeah. going on. And, uh, they're always a little unsettling when you watch them, even if they're goofy. Yeah. There's just something kind of creepy about it to well, me. You know, it's out of place. And as yeah. soon as something's out of, especially when it's something as ritualistic as the news. Oh yeah. You know, that follows a very specific pattern. And when something goes outside that pattern, you know, that upsets our little world balance for a moment. Yeah. So yeah. in this case, the, um, there was a, like you said, there was this, this disturbance in the force and a, a new picture popped up and replaced the, the sportscaster. And it was a guy in a disturbing rubber mask. Uh-huh. And that mask was of a specific 80s icon, which uh, I think a lot of people don't even know who this is anymore. But Max Hedrum. Yeah. If, you, if you're a child of the 80s, Max, Max Hedrum loomed large. For yeah. a while, and I know when this intrusion uh, came out, this broadcast intrusion, it seemed like about half the people even knew who he was trying to to imitate. Right, and then the other half just had no idea. They thought it was just some uh, weirdo with a mask on. Yeah, and well, and part of that was because uh, the quality of the video yeah. was not exactly super high quality. Sure, but. On top of that, yeah, it's kind of a niche thing, and he was uh, Max Hedrum was used as sort of a, a spokes. Thing, I guess a spokesman. Yeah, <laughs> for a new Coke. Sure, that that great move by the Coca Cola company. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I I remember that well. I remember it with pain. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, living living in Atlanta, the the whole Coca Cola new Coke thing was it, it definitely strikes close to home. So yeah, he um uh, he was a spokesman for that as well as a kind of a fantasy character who appeared on lots of other stuff. But uh, generally speaking, if you don't know who, know who Max Hedrum is, first just go ahead and do an image search because it'll pop right up. Yeah. Uh, but it's a a character that was supposed to look like a digital 
character, right? It was supposed to look like a computer-generated image, and it was kind of a, a a guy with a long face and weird kind of ridged hair. Uh-huh. He had a always had a, a a dynamic CGI background behind him that looked like kind of just like neon stripes that were constantly twisting and yeah. turning in different ways. And he would stutter. He had a digital stutter occasionally. And uh, uh, would be very kind of snarky and sarcastic. And ultimately got a television series as well as, uh, you know, two couple different television series, one of which was like a talk show and one of which was more of a, like a, an actual uh, fictional story, like an, with an arc. Yeah, that one was pretty good, actually. The original uh, British show, even though it was a lot of American actors, was was pretty cool and definitely ahead of its time mm-hmm. as far as, you know, the whole idea was that this uh, roving reporter was, uh, I think Matt Frewer played him yep. as a real dude and as Max Headroom, mm-hmm. but he was digitally replaced with this character, Max Headroom. Yeah. And at the time, it just seemed really odd. But now when you look back at it and watch it, it's like, man, this show was kind of ahead of the time. Yeah, it was really prescient. Yeah. yeah. It was. Uh, it also revealed where the name came from, where uh, Matt Frewer's character, as I recall, is waylaid. And the last thing he sees before he loses consciousness is yeah. a sign on a on a uh, uh, a wall that tells what the Max Headroom for that wall <laughs> yeah. is. Pretty and clever. that became the character's name. Uh, yeah, so the the person who appeared on this video was wearing a Max Headroom mask and had this corrugated metal background. Yeah, sort of emulated the, the digital look. Yeah. Uh, wore the suit uh, yep. that Max Headroom wore, like just a dark suit and tie. And, um, yeah, this thing was the metal background. It looked like a, like a garage door. Yeah. It was just sort of spinning in the background. Yeah, it was, it was on some sort of, uh, gimbal or something. That's what I figured. Yeah, because you, you can tell it's swinging back and forth so predictably it can't be held by somebody. Yeah. It had to be on some sort of pivot or something. Yeah. And uh, But it's moving backward and forward, so it kind of it mimics that, that digital line twisting in the background. And uh, except for one part, there's a part where there's a, a clear cut in the video. Yeah. Uh, the video itself is about, or at least what we've seen, is about a minute and 22 seconds long. Yeah, well, actually, I don't think we differentiated. There were two videos, oh, yeah, two yeah, intrusions. Yeah. The first one was short and had no audio and was on WGN. Right. And then about two hours later, they hijacked the PBS affiliate. Right. And that's where the classic minute and a half, nearly minute and a half with mm-hmm. audio, really yes. strange audio comes through. That's right. Cause that first one, like you said, I'm glad you pointed that out. Uh, it was silent. It was the, the images from the, and the image and the audio from WGN was cut, yeah. but there was no audio coming in other than, uh, the, I think there's like a buzzing noise right. that came in through the, our first intrusion. And, uh, you saw this, this figure just sitting there and kind of, rocking back and forth, like left and right. Yeah, which and, was also disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely like you felt like something is really wrong yeah. <laughs> at that moment. And when it came back, the sportscaster said, you might be wondering what just happened. I know I am. Yeah, sure. Uh, something along those lines. But yes, the second one, you had the audio and it played for the what we what appeared to be the length of the video. The first section had uh, the guy just saying Odd things. Uh, uh-huh. And they were all very Chicago specific. Things. Well, and, and sort of slamming WGN. Yeah. Because he, he'd slammed the, uh, Chuck Swirsky. Yeah. As a frickin' liberal. Yeah. <laughs> he oh, was boy. one of the reporters or anchormen, I think. Yeah, he was a sportscaster oh, okay. for WGN. Yeah. And, uh, he also talked about the greatest world newspaper nerd, something like that. But uh-huh. WGN stands for world's greatest newspaper. That's yeah, what I never those, knew that. 
Yeah. So uh, it turned out that that little you know, the the great the, the great world newspaper nerds or whatever, however he worded it, that was a reference back to WGN. So it was very right. clearly intended for WGN. Yeah. And the first attack wasn't as effective as as they had hoped because, uh, like I said, there was no audio. And also the folks at WGN, once they figured out something was going on, they yeah. very quickly changed the frequency on right. the transmitter. So they said, we'll just hit PBS, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is interesting. We'll talk more about how that kind of helps us know a little more about the attackers. Yeah. Uh, because here's the other thing. To this day, they, there's no... The public has no idea who did this. Yeah, I think that's why this story has lingered and it's so cool is because anytime you have an unsolved mystery, even if it's uh, just sort of an odd broadcast intrusion like this, people are going to be obsessed with it. Like um, we a lot of the information uh, from that I did uh, research on came from a motherboard Kind of the, the mother of all articles. This oh, guy yeah. did some great research. Yeah, Chris Nittle, who yeah. wrote this. Yeah, the article, if you want to look for it, is The Mystery of the Creepiest Television Hack. And I agree, this article is fantastic. It really lays out not just the incident, yeah. but also uh, other things that had happened beforehand that kind of laid the, the, the groundwork for this, uh-huh. as well as just a discussion, although a brief one, about the hacker culture that existed at that time and how that kind of uh, lends itself to people who maybe are uh, cleverer than is good for them, right. <laughs> or could be. Very nice way to say it. Yeah, because it, as it turns out, the FCC here in the United States does not take kindly to folks intruding upon uh, established airwaves. No. It's it's a big no-no. Especially with bare butts, uh, which I think uh, you said once the camera yeah. cuts, we didn't continue there. That's when it got really weird. Yeah. Uh, because there is a camera cut and then you see, uh, the mask is off, but the guy has his head out of frame and is just sort of holding the mask. Yeah. Uh, he, his pants are down showing his, his bare fanny. Yeah. And from, then there's from profile. Yeah. From profile. And yeah. then a lady on the right, uh, and looks like some sort of old West, like Annie Oakley type garb. Yeah. Spanks him with a fly swatter on his butt. Although Spanks is really being generous. She, yeah, sure. She's very slowly and lightly tapping him on the bottom with the fly swatter. So to the point where you're, you're thinking, like, I guess that's supposed to represent spanking. Uh, doesn't look like any spanking I ever received as a kid, but no. I gotcha. Uh, anyway, that's pretty much where the video cut off. And then it went right back into Doctor Who. And, yeah, uh, which is really funny to see the transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he died of an electric shock. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got to watch the whole incident on YouTube if yeah. you haven't already. Uh, and in case you're curious, that episode, it's we're talking classic Doctor Who, obviously, back in 1987. This is not the reboot. Uh, it was the horror of Fang Rock. So if that's your favorite episode, I'm sorry that was interrupted <laughs> back in 1987. So, uh, yeah, and like we said, the the audio really showed that that the public television station wasn't the intended target. Yeah. Uh, it was the, it was a target of opportunity after the first attempt failed. Exactly. And, uh, and we'll talk more about the technology behind that and, and why they had to switch from one to the other. Um, it turns out it was largely a practical issue, uh, at least as far as I can determine. And, um, it was, there were also references within the little weird diatribe the guy yeah. made to, Coca-Cola because he said catch yeah. the wave. And he had a new Coke can that he threw down on the ground. Yeah. Uh, and also a reference to the 
cult cartoon Clutch Cargo. Yeah, he hummed the theme. Uh, Clutch Cargo, if you've ever seen the movie Pulp Fiction, um, the scene with young uh, Bruce Willis back in the 1970s, I guess, with uh, Christopher Walken as his guardian. Yeah. He's watching Clutch Cargo on TV there the, with the mouths cut out. Right. Conan O'Brien has also used that same uh Comedic yeah, trick to use, great effect. Using the live action uh-huh. in order, because what what the whole point was was it was an idea of of, uh, of reducing the cost of animation, <laughs> big time. <laughs> because there was no animation, you it's had just a picture, yeah, still picture, uh-huh. and then you would superimpose live actors' mouths on top of it. Yeah. And if that sounds creepy and disturbing to you, you you're on the right track. Uh-huh. It was not the only cartoon to do this. There were a few others. Um, Thank you, Cambria Productions, for... Is that who that was? Yep. Nice. And, uh, yeah, so he hummed, like, the whole Clutch Cargo theme and made references to actual episodes of Clutch Cargo. Yeah. Uh, so it was certainly someone with an odd sense of humor who did this. Now, there was no other message, right? There was no... no it wasn't, like, a political no, thing. it was very stream of consciousness, kind of weird. He yeah. holds up... Uh, I guess what we can cleanly describe as a marital aid. Yes. At one yes. point and throws that on the ground. Yeah. And, um, it's just once the, the fly swatting comes in, it's just obvious that they're kind of free forming. Right. Although it was not live, which is right. important to know. This is a, a, some, a videotape that they made. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, because I mean, in order to do a live, uh, intrusion would, uh-huh. re- would require essentially a studio. Right. And you'd have to have some sort of, of, linked to a transmitter that also had line of sight to the same antenna right. as whatever target you were you were aiming at. So that would have been an astoundingly complicated. Yeah. This, is a, this is definitely a little easier to uh, pull off. So, uh, you know, now that we know that this, they've, they've never been found, they're likely never to be found. Uh, I mean, it's always possible that someone could come forward and say, all right, well, here's how it actually happened. I'm the guy who did this. I would, I'm surprised it hasn't happened by now because the statute uh, of limitations is up. Yeah, it's way up. So you can't get in trouble. And it's, um, I think they would, unless they just think it's better left as a mystery, they would live in like, especially nowadays with the internet, like it is, it would blow up, you know, it would be right. It could possibly be the fact that I mean, you know, of course, we're just projecting here. Yeah. But it could possibly be that they are no longer terribly proud of what they did and or that they've moved on in their lives. Yeah. yeah <laughs> it's been a true. significant <laughs> amount of time since then. And they might have thought, you know, I'm not going to brag about something I did when I was uh, younger and dumber. Yeah. Especially now that I'm the CEO of uh, yeah. ABC. Right. That might, <laughs> that might end up. By the way, we do not actually mean that the CEO of ABC no. or any Disney affiliates are involved in this. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> but the uh, the other interesting thing is that this was not the first time that um, a, a a an intrusion had happened in in broadcast history. Uh, the first one, if you want to go back, actually didn't happen in the United States. It happened back in uh, the UK in 1977. And that was, uh, when a hoaxer interrupted a southern television broadcast by, uh, inserting audio. It didn't change the video. So this was kind of the opposite of what had happened the first time right. with the Max Hedrum incident. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was an audio stream that came in and carried a message from the alien Vrillon. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and this is in the, like I said, in the UK. So, uh, obviously the alien had an English accent. 
Uh, I guess that's only, you know, fair. Like if you're going to interrupt someone's program, right. you want to make sure you're speaking in the dialect. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know. It'd be rude otherwise. Right. You know, <laughs> if suddenly they spoke like, like with a French accent, right. I mean, that would just be adding <laughs> insult to injury. Yeah, it's right? very off-putting. But anyway, so, uh, it was a message that essentially said that, uh, humans should prepare themselves for the worst because, you know, destruction is a common. Yeah, that's great. That's what a broadcast intrusion should be. Right. Some not, creepy warning. Not just a random series of <laughs> images that disturb yeah. you for things that you can't quite put your finger on. Yeah, although that is more disturbing almost. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, in 1986, we get the first one in the United States. Uh, and this was a, an inside job deal. This was happened on April 27th at 12.32 a.m. And it involved the East Coast feed of HBO. And uh, what happened was uh, the HBO was showing a movie called The Falcon and the Snowman. Great movie. Classic. Sure. You know, uh, it certainly could not be helped by approximately four minutes of footage missing because <laughs> they've been replaced by a series of colored bars that say, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. Yeah. Twelve ninety five a month? No way. Showtime, movie channel, beware. Yeah, that had a clear motive. Yeah. And, and, and actually, ironically, the, um, the guy was caught. His name was John R. McDougal. Yeah. And he was an employee of Central Florida Teleport. And he used, what did he use? He, the, was it the text that he used? He, yeah. So the text generators that uh, okay. the companies used in order to put an overlay on top of a screen. Uh huh. So like, like the actual words that were being used there. Well, they're very particular, and right. by measuring things like the height of the con- the font, the how far uh, the middle bar of an E is, according to the other sides, uh, how okay. close together those words are, wow. investigators were able to narrow it down to a specific machine. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty He might incredible. as well have had his fingerprint up there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is like incredible forensics, right? It's sort of like if someone gets hold of a typewritten sheet of paper and is able to determine the model a typewriter that was used to, to actually make this. But in this case, it got even more specific because these machines aren't everywhere. And that's what led them to track down McDougal, who, uh, who had just decided that the, the recent hike in prices for a monthly subscription to HBO were unconscionable and he had to make it known. <laughs> so yeah, he had a side job selling satellite dish, uh, service. Yeah. So he thought that would, uh, nick his business some. Yeah. And so he eventually was caught and pled guilty, uh, paid a $5,000 fine and served just one year probation. And it was that incident that led, uh, I believe Congress to make it a federal violation. Yeah. To, uh, it's a felony. Yeah. It was a felony all of a sudden. Yeah. Because, uh, they suddenly said, wait, now that people can actually do this. Now, granted, this was someone, like we said, an inside job. They had access to, uh, a satellite. What, what he actually did was he pointed the satellite of Central Florida uh, teleport yeah. at the HBO satellite. <laughs> so now, easy. Chuck, you and I, we wouldn't even know where the heck that satellite is. Yeah. So even if we had the equipment and everything else, we'd just be, well, the sky is a lot bigger <laughs> than I had taken into account. And, uh, you know, of course, we'd have to be someplace where we could actually get a good clear view of the sky because sure. if there are building in the way or something. But, uh, uh, yeah, so he he was uh, a good example of that. And then September 1987. So this is just before the um, the incident with the, the Max Hedrum incident. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Haney hijacked a signal at on the Playboy channel. I think I remember hearing about this one. Yeah, it was one where it was uh, sending in religious messages, essentially saying repent and, and, you know, you are 
discard your wicked ways, that kind of thing. Right. And it's no surprise because he actually worked for the Christian Broadcast Network. Yeah. So, so again, he an had inside job. Yeah. He had access to the equipment necessary and the knowledge necessary to be able to do this. It's not something that the uh, the average person would be able to do. And again, it was the character generator, the the font generator that kind of led the way. It was the main piece of evidence that was leveled against him. Um, I remember that Pat Robertson was very upset. Oh, was he? When the verdict was handled, handed down, he said that there wasn't enough evidence to um, to say that Haney was, in fact, the person who, who did this. Well, he was convicted, but um, I think just got probation. And um, the first guy, McDougal, is interesting. What he got convicted for was... Operating without a license. Yeah. Even though he had a license. Yeah. So that was a bit of a hinky ruling. I think they just had to convict him of something because I don't know if the law was in place at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like that deal where you realize this is someone that we need to punish, but we don't have a law that covers <laughs> the crime. Right. And we haven't defined it as a crime, but we know that this is something people really shouldn't be able to do. So we have to somehow <laughs> justify it. Um, yeah. And as it turns out, the, the, Every nation, uh, in some way or another, ends up regulating the electromagnetic spectrum, but it changes from one place to the other. Sure. There's only so much room, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, electromagnetic spectrum goes all the way from radio waves, which can a radio wave can be kilometers long. Oh, wow. Right. And then you go all the way to the other side to like gamma rays. We're uh-huh. talking about on the nanoscale. And everything in between, that's the electromagnetic spectrum. Visible light is part of that. You know, visible light is on the, the short side, but radio waves and microwaves are on the longer side. Yeah. And uh, not all those radio waves, you know, we can't just all use the same ones because then we would have interference, right? If, uh, if the television and your phone use the same frequencies, then you'd have interference between the two, and that would be terrible. Nothing would be usable. Yeah, don't they call it a crunch if there's too much activity on one frequency? Yeah, that's that's if you've got everyone just using, you know, what they're supposed to. Let's say everyone in the cellular network uh-huh. uh, has, they, they're all on their phones. That We've seen this happen in oh, real yeah. life events, sure. like post 9-11. Yeah, no one can get New through. New York couldn't, yeah. Or even just going to a big event. Like any, like CES or uh-huh. any large event like that, you suddenly can't get access to anything. That's where you've got more demand for data transmission than there is capacity. Yeah, I've tried to get a signal at Comic Con before, and yeah. it's not easy. No, yeah. no. Same thing's true at Dragon Con, and that's a like a third the size of Comic Con. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's also true that there are wavelengths within the electromagnetic spectrum that are really good for carrying data, and uh-huh. some that aren't. So. The government has divided up the, the electromagnetic spectrum and saying these are the sections that can be used for specific purposes. So right. a large part of it is set aside for government and military use. Sure. A large part of it is set aside for uh, radio, so mm-hmm. AM and FM. Uh, and then you also have television broadcasts that are that are partialed off, partioned off. Uh, as well, cellular data, Wi-Fi, all of these things have their specific place that is mandated by the government. Yeah. Well, guys, Chuck and I have a lot more to talk about with the Max Headroom incident. But before we continue, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So if you go in and start messing around with that, the government gets pretty upset. Yeah, because uh, I think, you know, sort of a nip it in the bud situation, yeah. like one broadcast intrusion, really no big deal. And that apparently is why the uh, the lead investigator, 
said that, um, I think his name was Marcus. He had a hard time getting resources because yeah. there was a little egg on the face and they probably just wanted it to go away. Right. More than anything. And no one's really hurt. There was no damage done. So they're not going to throw a lot of money and time at trying to find this person. And, uh, and he also had some fairly harsh words for an FCC, uh, investigator who yeah. was actually in Chicago. He didn't name the person. But no, said he's that, still salty about it though. Yeah. I said funny. that, said that this guy wasn't willing to go and knock on doors to actually do some investigation. Yeah. But, and part of that is probably because there was this embarrassment factor. They're also, but without the teeth, you know, uh, with the authority, it makes it hard for someone to go out and say, uh, there's a justification for spending the time, resources, and money necessary right. to investigate this. For a small fine and probation, even if they yeah. do catch the person. Now, the maximum fine, although I doubt that we would see a maximum fine for something as small as a minute and a half interruption in Doctor Who. Yeah. Doctor Who fans, please don't <laughs> take me to task for that. But the maximum fine is $100,000 or a year in jail, or both. Yeah, which they were very big on announcing at the time. Yeah. Uh, as well as, um, I think they had a lot of misinformation. They, or I don't know if it was misinformation or they were trying to get out a little misinformation saying how sophisticated of an right. operation it was and how expensive all the equipment must have been, which is really not the case. No, I think, I think it was a, a lot of, uh, people trying to discourage future pranksters from following in exactly. their footsteps. So that means, well, let's make sure we, we set the, the bar very high saying, it's really hard to do, and it's really expensive. Yeah, don't so, even try. <laughs> yeah, and if you do try, it's going to get even more expensive for you because we're going to fine you a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So uh, now the truth was that the transmission equipment that was that could be used to do such a thing, while brand new, would cost maybe you know a few thousand dollars, which is a significant amount of money. Uh-huh. Once it hits the aftermarket, like you know, say that you've got a a, a station, a small station that is upgrading its equipment and it yeah. gets rid of the old stuff, that was on the amateur market. So yeah. you could go out and buy that stuff, and it would be much less expensive than if you were to buy it brand new. So uh, I mentioned earlier in this episode about the the hacker culture. Well, it, have you heard about freakers? No. Okay, so a freaker, spelled P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G. <laughs> I like it already. Uh, freaking, it's all about manipulating the phone system. Okay. So Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were freakers, uh-huh. uh, the founders of Apple. Actually, Wozniak was really the guy who knew how to do it. Uh, but there were a, a ton of them. One of the most famous ones, his name was Captain Crunch. And Captain Crunch was called that because he discovered that by using a Captain Crunch plastic whistle that came in a <laughs> box of cereal, he could mimic the tone that the telephone company was using Wow. and allow him to make free long-distance phone calls. Wow. So you had this culture of people who were... Wait, fa- what's a long-distance phone call? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Kids, once upon a time, if you wanted to call anyone outside of your area code, it cost extra. <laughs> I had a lady actually tell me that the other day that was cutting my hair. She got a phone call. She said, I'm sorry, it's my daughter long-distance. I need to step away. And I was sitting there going, hmm, what's long-distance? Yeah. Uh, Maybe international. Yeah. That might be it. That's about it. Or you could just keep cutting my hair. Right, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's fine. I mean, right. I, I, I'm not going to know you. Her half of the conversation. But yeah, the, the, uh, these were people who thought that these huge systems were fascinating. Yeah. The, the telephone system was really interesting and learning how it worked was fascinating. And then once you know how it works, 
you know how to kind of game the system. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the case that they were looking to cause trouble or to be pranksters, although there was some mischief involved there, too. A lot of it was more about, oh, now I know how this works, and that means this works this other way. It was really more about learning the system right. and, and then ne- negotiating it. Kind of like uh, war games. Yes, very much so. Like a little mischief, a little civil disobedience, but I don't think... Uh, most of these people early on were trying to cause harm. No, it was really more of insatiable curiosity. Right. Like, I, really... I can, so let me just try it out right. and see so, if it works. I think that's exactly what happened with this Max Hedgehog. I totally agree. You had people who said, let's, you know, we know how radio works. Uh-huh. And television broadcast is essentially a radio broadcast. Yeah. So once you know how that works and once you know the, the basics behind it, are there ways where we could end up, uh, injecting our own signal into this. Right. And, and have a little fun. And have a little fun, uh-huh. exactly. And so it, it was one of those things where you had the people who had the know-how and you had the people who had the willingness to do it, and they were working together to create this prank. And, uh, again, aiming at a very specific target, and when that didn't work, switching to Doctor Who. Yeah, I appreciate the attitude of most of this stuff, too, to be honest. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with a little hijinks to thumb your nose at the man. If you're not hurting anybody... Um, I mean, you don't want to see it all the time because then it takes out all the teeth out of it. Sure. But every now and then I kind of like, you know, when they interviewed people in Chicago, some people on the street were really upset and some people just kind of laughed. I was like, I think it's pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Because, again, like like we were saying, there wasn't any lasting harm here. Right. No, of course not. The the actual intrusion didn't cause any damage. It wasn't it wasn't something that was going to wreck physical equipment. No, you lost 80 seconds of Doctor Who. Yeah. Which some might say is a crime. In some and people itself. say it's priceless. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, this is Tom Baker, Doctor Who, we're talking about. Well, here. especially back then when you just couldn't go look up, you know, the scene that I missed the night before. Right. Like that was a true intrusion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is obviously pre. Well, I mean, the internet was around, but nobody was on it except for yeah, like, it was like bulletin boards and stuff. Yeah, right? it was, that was that was pretty much what most. Uh, hackers had access to, unless right. they were in a university and they had some access to the preliminary version of the internet. Um, but there was no World Wide Web. There was no web. There wouldn't be another. There wouldn't be a World Wide Web for another five years. Wow, that's so, crazy. <laughs> so there was no way of being able to go on and and check something you missed. Uh, nor was there a way for you to really easily communicate uh, with folks all over the world. Now they could do it with local bulletin board systems, and in fact, that's we suspect. Yeah. Or at least there, there's a lot of suspicion that, in fact, one of the local Chicago BBSs had people in a forum who were at least tangentially involved in this, if not directly responsible. Right. Uh, but to really understand what was going on, it helps to understand how a broadcast, a, you know, a television broadcast actually works. So here we go. We're going to go in, back to the analog days of TV broadcast technology. All right. So... Now, Chuck, you've, you've been in a television studio too. I uh-huh. know, right? Yeah. Yeah. You and, you and Josh, I'm sure have done some of this. I've done some of this. When you see how a TV studio works, it's actually very eye opening. I mean, it, to me, it completely pulled away a lot of misconceptions that I had had. For example, you think of like cameramen, but in large part, camera operation is done remotely, not behind a camera. Right. right? Uh, these cameras that you see in the studio are enormous and they're heavy. And th- this is also um, the reason why I'm explaining this is also to to uh, illustrate why doing this live would have been uh, impractical. Yeah. These television cameras are 
the reason why they're so big and heavy is in part so that they're incredibly smooth and steady and they aren't going to jitter if, you know, you could drop something right next to one. It's not going to move at all. Yeah, it's the same reason a, a camera dolly weighs, you know, a thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. It's in order to get that that stability that you want, so that you they don't weigh a thousand pounds. By the way, <laughs> they're less than that, but they're super heavy for yeah. that reason. Right. You you want that stability and that smoothness. Uh, and also, a television camera doesn't pick up sound. It doesn't have a microphone on it. Right. It's all about just capturing the image. Yeah, the mic, uh, the sound is, is captured separately yep. and, uh, well, mixed together later. We'll explain the magic. Yeah. <laughs> so, the photons, that's the particles of light, uh-huh. that are coming from a scene, uh, and are being captured by a camera. Uh, the light passes through a lens, which goes through a prism. Yeah. The prism is the purpose of a prism is to break up uh, light into its component parts. And in this case, we're talking about a prism that breaks light into red, green, and blue. That's all you needed. Back That's then. all you needed. Yeah. And uh, each of those streams goes and is hit by, or it hits a CCD, a charge couple device. Now, a charge couple device, what it does is when photons hit it, it generates uh, a stream of electricity that essentially reflects the nature of the photons that hit it. Right. So. You've got these three streams coming out, the red, green, and blue. Uh, they then go into a, an encoder. Meanwhile, the sound that you're creating is also going to head back over towards the master control room. The information from the encoder goes to the master control room. It gets mixed together. So you then have a signal that has both uh, video and sound. Now, there, if you were to be able to visualize this, mm-hmm. uh, it would actually be like the 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 visual data would make up most of the uh, a range of frequencies like, yeah like four within four megahertz okay and then the very edge of it like on the far right side that would represent the sound so yeah. it's just a little sliver that's the sound yeah and you're either preparing to to broadcast this out to the masses live or you're just putting it to tape yeah to do so later yeah these days we'd put it on a server or both, i guess yeah or both yeah exactly yeah. if you wanted to 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 keep it forever. Now, you may have heard that there were uh, times where people were broadcasting stuff and never recording it. So there, there are things that have been created for television that we will never see again. Right. It's kind of like, in some ways, going to see a live stage show. If you were there, you saw it, and right. if you weren't, that's it. That's a good point. But uh, in this case, we're talking about a live newscast, so that's being broadcast out. From that point, when it's all been encoded... And you've got this video signal that has all the information. It's got the red, the green, the blue, and the audio. Yeah. All four things that you need. (laughs) Yeah. It's time to transmit that out. And it goes from uh, the studio to a transmitter that's called a studio transmitter link. Now, most studios don't have an enormous antenna that's at a really high elevation that can broadcast to the general area. That's right. Cities share them. Yeah. And we're talking about an era of over-the-air television, right? You're yeah. using your antenna to pick up wavelengths. So what what they would do is they would use the studio transmitter link to beam this information to a nearby antenna on a very tall building. Yeah, usually the tallest buildings in your city uh, will yeah. have these. And Chicago has a lot of tall buildings. Yes, and they use them for that purpose. So, exactly. So if uh, you stream that out to the antenna, the antenna then ends up, broadcasting an electromagnetic signal and that ends up being picked up by the antenna of your television which the the electromagnetic signal when it hits the antenna it generates an electrical current 
A tuner in your television is able to focus in on a specific channel uh, and thus kind of filter the signal from the noise. Yeah. And then it ends up uh, pulling out that video stream, creating the red, green, blue, and the audio, and you get your TV that you get to watch. It's beautiful. It's and gorgeous. It's simplicity. It really yeah, is. Or I, was, I guess. I joked with you earlier that we should just give them the explanation from Willy Wonka, which is right. slightly more simplistic, <laughs> <laughs> but but easier to explain. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's not quite that easy. So knowing how this works, where you've got the signal coming from the studio being transmitted out to a giant antenna and then broadcast to an area, there are several areas that could be potentially vulnerable to intrusion. If you are working on the inside, uh-huh. then if you're able to intercept and put in a new signal to go to the uh, the studio transmitter link yeah. to go out, then you're done. That's all you need to do. You need to just very easy to do and very easy to, to trace back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Inside job, you're like, well, let's look at the people who have access. Because exactly. now that's all that could have done this. But as it turns out, with a over the air analog transmission, there was an easier way of doing this where you didn't have to break into the studio to do it. No, it was pretty great, actually. Yeah. So all you have to do. Uh, and I say all you have to do. This still is pretty significant. Yeah. Is you have to have a transmitter of your own. You have to be able to have a direct line of sight to the uh, antenna that's going to pick up the the transmission from the studio. Yep. And you have to transmit on the frequency that the studio uses at a higher intensity than what the studio is doing. And then the antenna, which is stupid. Yeah. It, it can't differentiate. All it knows is. That's when a I, bad signal. I don't want to broadcast right, that. They if, don't know that. If it's the right frequency, it's going to broadcast it. So. When you hit the the antenna, it's going to go for the strongest signal. I mean, this makes sense because if you had two signals that were the same frequency uh-huh. and one is stronger than the other, chances are the other frequency is coming from a different source further away, and that's not the one you want to transmit. Yeah, so literally all they needed, I mean, they didn't need to, to blow it out of the water. Yeah. They just needed to be stronger. Right. And to do so... You just need to be a little closer. Yeah. yeah or maybe yeah. a lot closer in this case. But, but yeah, exactly. They just had to be somewhere along the pathway. Right. From the studio to the antenna that was being used. Uh, they, and they just had to, uh, transmit on the right frequency, which was, that was information they could get. They could yeah. get the information on what frequency to use. So you've got your transmitter, you've got your media, which in this case was a tape that they had shot earlier. Yeah. Because that wasn't live. You're probably on a building. And they've got to be somewhere pretty high up. So, yeah, likely on top of a building or at least on like a balcony or fire escape or something right. where they can have a line of sight. Uh, they are they've got their transmitter and geared up to the right amount of power. They shoot it off and everything else is taken care of for them. They That's don't right. have to do anything else. In this case, the John Hancock building and the Sears Tower were the two towers that had these two right. receivers. And uh, there have been a lot of theories over the years. Um most people believe they were probably high up, but I have seen one theory that they were uh, mobile in a van. Oh, wow. And not necessarily high up, but just super, super close. They, they, Yeah, that would also require them to have some way of maintaining that line of sight and that that steady transmission. Because, yeah. you know, if you if you don't. If you don't have your uh, electromagnetic waves directed right at the, the receiver, uh-huh. then it's going it's not going to be a strong enough signal. Yeah, I don't I don't buy the van theory. It'd be really, really challenging. Plus I, I powering mean, everything. It's yeah. that'd be a pretty more sophisticated. It operation. does make me suddenly think that the Scooby gang was responsible <laughs> for it. <laughs> like because like, you've got the big rubber mask, like, oh man, withers. Right. Or whatever. <laughs> 
We've got a bit more to talk about when it comes to this crazy incident in tech history. But before we conclude, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So Channel 9, which was uh, WGN in Chicago, uh, if you look at the channels in the United States, they actually have the designated frequencies they have to you know, use, uh-huh. or at least the range. Right. That's around 187 megahertz. So you tune your transmitter to that signal and you aim it at the, you know where the antenna is. Mm-hmm. You've identified that. You've got it all lined up and you're good to go. Well, once WGN changed their frequency, that meant that it didn't matter how much power they poured into the transmitter. Exactly. It's like you're speaking the wrong language. Yeah. So that meant that suddenly their their prank didn't really go anywhere. They had a, a brief appearance with no audio. Yeah, so they, they probably did something a little wrong on their end. Yeah. On their, well, it probably wasn't a test run. They probably wanted it to work great. Right, right, right. But then fortunately uh, for them, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately for them, it didn't work with, uh, you know, without a hitch. So they then say, well, what can we do? How can we um, save this and maybe get the actual video that we shot seen and yeah, heard. that great quality content that right. we shot. <laughs> yeah, if you guys haven't watched this video, you really kind of need to. Yeah. <laughs> but at any rate, so uh, they they then decided to do their backup plan. They knew the frequency that the local uh, public broadcast channel was using, and they knew that that antenna was on top of the Sears Tower and that they could aim at that one. Yeah. And... Uh, so whether or not they had to relocate, they they probably did just to get a good line of sight right. on the on the um, antenna. But uh, it was only a two hour time difference between the first attack and the second attack. So to retune the transmitter, to prep it, to get ready to to hit the target, and to make sure you have a line of sight on it, they probably stayed in. The same general area. Yeah, which is the north. Northwest part of Chicago. Northwest. Yeah, there's actually uh, that that uh, article we were talking about, the motherboard article. They have a great picture that shows the location of both studios uh-huh. and both antenna. And it kind of shows you like an area where where the two lines almost cross. Oh, interesting. And you figure, I bet, I bet they were somewhere in this general area so that they could, if they didn't have to relocate, uh, then they, they just you know, shifted position, or maybe they relocated by a couple of blocks. Right. Um, which raises the question, how'd they get access to a high enough area and still have power and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, they were just on their buddy's, uh, the roof of his apartment you know, yeah. with an extension cord. <laughs> right. That's my that, theory. That's probably what happened. Uh, so they then did the second attack at 11 o'clock or 11.14, and that one worked much better. Um, and... Like we said, the the material they had, uh, the the equipment they had was readily available. wasn't It wasn't as rare as you would think it would be. No, Doctor Marcus, the lead investigator, said that uh, like a direct TV size antenna these days yeah. is about all you would have needed. It's not like one of those like school bus size satellite, satellite dishes, dishes that yeah. you used to see in, in backyards back in the day. It's pretty incredible uh, the how little you would need in order to do it. So. Fascinating attack. Fascinating fact that it they were able to do it without being caught. Um, and the fact that, you know, there weren't a whole lot of broadcast intrusions after this point. You've heard about maybe one or two. The Disney Channel has uh, infamously been the attack, uh, the, the site of an attack 
on multiple occasions. Yeah, I think the Super Bowl was hijacked briefly a few yeah. years ago in one city only, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's harder and harder to do now because you've got things like uh, digital encoding. Yeah, sure. That make it much uh, much more difficult for the average hacker to do. I'm surprised it didn't happen more often back in those days. Yeah. With those early hackers, sort of the Wild West. It may very well have been that the scare tactics the FCC used totally worked. Like People said, like, well, I know I can do this, but I'm totally not going to do this. Right. Um, And, you know, we we talked a little bit. uh, There are some theories out there about who could have been responsible for this. My favorite was the the one that ha- is probably the easiest to dismiss, which was uh, uh, Eric Fournier, who was a, right. a punk rock uh, musician as well as an avant-garde artist who created a series of videos. Um, it's funny because the Motherboard article refers to it as a YouTube channel, but in fact, the videos predate YouTube. Oh, yeah, I guess it is now on a YouTube channel. Yeah. But they were called Shay, uh, S-H-A-Y-E, St. John. Yeah, Shay St. John. And if you look at these, you, you forced me to earlier. Yeah. Uh, they do have a similar quality. Um, yeah. very, just a similar feel almost. Absurd, uh-huh. surreal, disturbing. Doesn't like, necessarily make much sense. It, you know, I, I think of it like you, you've seen the horror movies where they, they all, um, center around like a creepy looking doll. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. That's a, that's a genre unto itself. There's and, a brand new one, right? About a doll. Sure. Annabelle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's the fact that I responded so quickly with that <laughs> is not good for me. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's this idea of things that look not quite right. And the, the Shea St. John videos are all about that. And they, they involve the looping of, uh, certain phrases over and over again. Uh-huh. Uh, experiments in lighting, experiments in, uh, uh, camera angles as well as uh, digital effects or maybe not even digital effects, but special effects. Uh, the earlier ones are actually more trippy than uh-huh. the ones that are on the YouTube channel itself. Um, so you can see that the, there's some shared, uh, aesthetics. Yeah. And he lived in Indiana, apparently just a few hours from Chicago. Yeah. Um, he passed away in 2010. So yep. we'll never know. I read one article that said that he admitted to his friends that it was him, but I couldn't find anything else to substantiate that. And the motherboard article goes so far as to suggest that that it's not him. It's not him because his friends all said he at that time in 1987, he had no knowledge of video editing. Yeah. All the video stuff he did was later on. It was in the late 90s, early 2000s. So it would make sense that um while it's the same sort of kind of humor, it's not the same person. Yeah, his old bandmate even said, you know, Eric didn't do this, but he he would have loved it. Yeah. <laughs> he would have thought it was really funny. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's another uh, theory that I first saw on Reddit. In yeah. fact, that's how I saw the link to Motherboard. Uh, and be- you sent me the link, uh-huh. and I saw it on Reddit as well. Yeah, this one holds some water to me, unless this guy, Bowie J., uh, is that Pogue? P-O-A-G? Pogue or Poag. One of the two. Let's <laughs> say Poag. <laughs> uh, unless he is just making all this stuff up. Right. This, otherwise, this sounds like a pretty decent lead. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard some people suggest that, that perhaps the guy himself is the one who did it and he's invented these personas to right. be the, to be the, the way of him explaining how it was done without uh-huh. actually admitting that he did it. Yeah, yeah. But he, he maintains his innocence. He says, no, I, I really, 
All of the evidence I have is purely circumstantial. I was 13 when this happened, which to me suggests that it's not him. Right. It does not seem like a 13-year-old. No, there's no way. Uh, the the voice in the video is distorted, but it does. It definitely seems like it's someone who's older than that. Yeah. Um, but he talks about uh, uh, two brothers. And one brother, uh, he said he described him as seeming to be on the aut- autism spectrum and that he had a very keen interest in broadcast spectrum and broadcast technology, uh, but didn't have very many social skills. Yeah, uh, he was the um, POAG. Yeah, <laughs> he was very big as a 13 year old on that in that hacker scene. But yep. trying to sound like really like one of the young ones trying to ingratiate himself. Into the group. Yeah. Into the group. These were a little older guys who were more experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, he calls them J and K, which are not their names. Right. Uh, to provide their, you know, to guard their anonymity. And he said that Jay, who was supposedly the autistic one, was um, he's the one who says that was the guy in the mask. Yeah. They had the same build. Uh, he references his brother in the video. Yeah, yeah he says that because he, he shows a glove and he says, uh, this one is dirty. My uh-huh. brother is wearing the other one. Yeah, he uh, apparently he says, uh, and this is from his Reddit, he said uh, he liked to tell dirty jokes. Uh, the dirty jokes were funny, at least to me as a 13-year-old. And a woman dressed up as Annie Oakley swatting someone's bare butt with a fly swatter is a perfect reflection of his sense of humor. Uh, it was usually childish and sexually deviant. Yeah. And he talked about how he had kind of a, a verbal tick that instead of saying, uh, or, mm, uh-huh. when he was trying to think of something, he'd say, oh. Yeah. And that if you listen to the video. There's an O in there, right? There's some, there's, a, yeah, there's a lot of him kind of making, oh, noises uh-huh. between <laughs> when he's saying things. Yeah. So it does kind of come across as someone who's trying to think of the next thing to say. Like it didn't feel like it certainly does not feel that the Max Hedrum incident was terribly scripted. Like it does, <laughs> no. I think it was a lot off the cuff. Unless it was the script of a madman. Yeah. Yeah. So the the other brother, Kay, was Jay's caretaker uh-huh. uh, and also was possibly the, the, the theory seems to be that Kay was the one working the camera. Right. That Jay was the one on camera. And that Kay's girlfriend was the one with the fly swatter. Okay. And, uh, again, all of this ends up being circumstantial evidence. Uh, he said that as, uh, Pogue said that as a 13 year old, he went to this apartment that was just filled with equipment. Yeah. Uh, he says that there was nothing, you know, no normal decorations except like a rainbow kite or something in there. Everything else was, uh, electronic equipment and that they were, the people there were talking about something but not explicitly talking about it, just saying that something big was going to happen right? and that he should definitely make sure to be watching Channel 9 at 9 p.m., uh, like WGN at 9 p.m., so that he could see the big thing that was going to happen and that he claims he didn't even put two and two together. Yeah, like he saw the incident go down and knew that something big was going to happen, which does seem a little hinky to me, but he says years later is when it all kind of connected for me. <laughs> Seems a little weird. That does seem a little weird to me, too. But he said he does go on to defend himself a bit and say, you know, that there were uh, I heard a dozen things from them a day that were just sort of weird and out there. And it wouldn't register as anything big to me. Right. If they said, you know, we're going to do something big, watch the TV tonight. So in other words, they were a bunch of big talkers, but not a lot. Maybe so. Yeah. Yeah, He was a kid. He was trying to fit in. He, you know, it sounded like he was kind of nervous hanging around this crowd. Eager to please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, he, he's the one who on Reddit just laid out the situation and explained 
uh, what he thought had happened based upon circumstantial evidence. Again, he, he never witnessed any of this himself, according to his yeah. account. And it kind of blew up on Reddit, didn't it? It did. It did. And he ga- gave specific updates. And in fact, he was interviewed heavily for the Motherboard article. Yeah. Uh, and he explained that he tried to get in touch with J&K um, through multiple media. Yeah, like he knows where they are still. Yep. He sent them uh, Facebook messages, he uh-huh. sent them email, and he sent them uh, actual snail mail. Right. And didn't get any response. And he says, I'm taking that as a indication that they don't want to talk about this. At yeah. All. And so out of respect for their privacy, I'm dropping it. Yeah. And so uh, he never revealed the identities of the people. No, he did have other people on the Reddit, though, said they were around that same scene back then. And it sort of checks out. The guy had a similar build. He was sort of short and squatty. Mm-hmm. And um, so he had a little bit of support. But it's all circumstantial and conjecture. Right. You know, there's obviously no proof, no smoking gun. Right. So we may never know for sure who did this. Well, someone will have to come forward. That's the only way. I think. Yeah. But it's one of those mysteries that is really interesting to read about to to and the fact that it it's still, you know, you can you can watch the video. You can actually see yeah. what happened. Uh, it's kind of cool because you know, a lot of these these weird moments, you just have second or third hand accounts and you can't. Uh-huh. You can't really experience it for yourself. You have to think, oh, what would it have been like? But now you can actually see. Yeah, it's a pretty neat little time capsule experience, especially if you grew up in the 80s. Right. And if you don't know who Max Hedrum is, then maybe you should do some research on that first. Yeah. And then watch the video to understand how weird this was. That BB show, I'm telling you, is pretty good. You yeah. Should, people should watch that. Yeah, totally. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this classic episode of Tech Stuff. Big thanks once again to Chuck Bryant for agreeing to be on it. It was a lot of fun to explore this story one that I had heard about. I had seen the videos. I found them a little unsettling, honestly. Uh, and other people just find them funny. It all depends on your, your sense of humor, I guess. But it was really interesting to take a deeper dive and really learn the, the story behind it as much as we do know and how it was even possible. And, uh, guys, if you're thinking about trying to pirate various signals out there, first of all, you're going to need a pretty powerful transmitter. Second of all, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't be dumb, as Josh Clark, the other co-host of Stuff You Should Know, would say. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can draw me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Follow us on Instagram, and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 